1: This is Chris Gunty of the Catholic Review. With us today on Catholic Baltimore is Bishop Adam Parker, Vicar General and Moderator of the Curia for the Archdiocese of Baltimore. Bishop Parker was ordained to the priesthood in 2000 and served in several parishes before being assigned as priest secretary to then Archbishop Edwin F. O'Brien when he was appointed to Baltimore in 2007. Bishop Parker was ordained Auxiliary Bishop of Baltimore in January 2017. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Chris. It's a pleasure to be with you today. We're going to talk about a tough topic. This is the child sexual abuse that's been happening in the church. It's come to the the fore, really, especially since some of the events this summer. Since that time, you've been going out to a lot of the regional listening sessions and parish sessions to talk about this crisis, this scandal. How many of those have you
2: attended, and what are you hearing as you go out? We've done 17 sessions thus far, and that would include sessions that we have done with our priests here in the archdiocese, our deacons the folks who work here in central services at the Catholic Center, as well as people who are on our pastoral staffs, and then parishes where parishioners have been invited to come at large. So quite a a large population that we've had the opportunity to encounter thus far. Mm -hmm. What are you hearing from the people there? Certainly a lot of concern. There's anger, there's confusion, there's bewilderment. I think probably the prevailing sentiment has been We thought we had this fixed almost two decades ago. How is it that we got back here today? And people are wondering, has the problem been fixed or is it still occurring today?
1: How did we get back here today? The bishops passed the Charter for the Protection of Children and Young People with the accompanying uh, norms that went with it. We
2: thought those changes would take care of these concerns and yet here we are. Two major things. Of course, we heard about the revelations about Archbishop McCarrick this past summer, how he had for a number of years been harassing seminarians and also was found to have a substantiated allegation of child sexual abuse earlier this year. I think that revelation really kicked it off and then it was compounded when the Pennsylvania Grand Jury report was released on August 14th detailing the fact that some 300 priests had abused a thousand children. So those two revelations this past summer brought us back and they took us back to where we are today. Certainly with the Pennsylvania grand jury report, there is a a feeling even a perception created by the report and the news media following the report that that abuse happened in the very recent near past when in fact that report detailed allegations and incidents of abuse going back some 70 years. Even in the state of Pennsylvania, the number of abuse cases since 2002 is very, very small. And I'm happy to say that is likewise true here in the Archdiocese of Baltimore. Of the clergy abuse that we know of today, it has been 25 years since a priest hurt a minor here in this Archdiocese. Again, I want to be clear that that's what we know of today. So when we think about how we got back here, I think about the Pennsylvania report and the revelations there certainly opened up what was an old wound, but in fact, a story that we had heard before. Mm-hmm. What I'm speaking of, I think you probably know, is, is the revelations that occurred back in 2002 as reported by the Boston Globe and how the scandal really broke wide open in Boston nearly two decades ago.
1: Mm-hmm. How do you answer people who say that the church, and especially the bishops, just aren't
2: doing enough to prevent and address child sexual abuse in the church? I think it's important to take a look at our recent past and and how handling of allegations occurs today. Things are different there has been a substantial evolution in the handling of allegations and let me just speak for a moment about what we do here in the archdiocese today and this is largely predicated upon the charter for the protection of young people but fortunately thanks to our leadership here in the archdiocese even prior to the charter we have been handling these allegations in a particular way what is that Number one, the first thing that we do when an allegation of child sexual abuse comes in is we report it to civil authorities. That's been the law here in the state of Maryland for over 25 years now, and we comply with that law. So, even if a person comes to us and they're already an adult, we still report that as is prescribed by Maryland law. That then gives the civil authorities their opportunity to do an investigation. And we likewise conduct our own internal investigation here at the level of the Archdiocese. I oversee the team that does those investigations, which is primarily led by Jerry Burkhart, who is our Officer for Child and Youth Protection. The team is also staffed by our Vice Chancellor, Sean Kane, who also works in communications, our Diocese and Legal Counsel, Dave Kinkoff, our Lay Chancellor, Dr. Diane Barr, and our human resources director, Mr. Joe Smith. So we are the team that that oversee and investigate these allegations. Unless there is an immediate and very substantial reason to rule out any allegation that comes forward against a priest, we remove that priest immediately from ministry if he is still active. In fact, that happened earlier this year, where a person came forward with an allegation dating back to the 1970s, and as soon as we received the information about that allegation, we reported it to civil authorities, did our initial investigation, but also immediately removed the priest from ministry. A significant component of that removal from ministry is our public disclosure that the priest has been suspended and why. So that's a substantial element in the evolution of how allegations of sexual abuse has occurred and has changed because now when the priest is removed, we tell our faithful, we tell the public why he's being removed. We've been doing that even since before the charter here in the Archdiocese of Baltimore. That kind of transparency is extremely significant and important for our own credibility. Part of that process, too, in our public disclosure is if the priest is in active ministry at the time of his removal, we will conduct a meeting at His parish of ministry so that the people have the opportunity to be informed and also ask questions about the allegation itself. A main reason why we want to make those allegations public is we understand that many victim survivors have a difficult time coming forward, understandably, especially if they believe that they might be the only one. And so when we make a public disclosure about allegations, It gives other potential victim survivors the opportunity to know, A, that they are not alone and that they can and should come forward to us. The other thing that we do with victim survivors when an allegation is made is we initially and immediately offer them an apology on behalf of the church and the archdiocese. We also offer them counseling. And they can go to a counselor of their own choosing at the expense of the archdiocese and we offer that counseling to them for as long as it takes for their own healing, which for many, if not most, is over the course of many years.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: And that same process applies if the allegations against a, a, a lay employee or a volunteer at a parish or school, correct? That's correct, and I'm glad you brought that up because it does happen and there have been allegations within the last 25 years, in fact, much more recently, with regard to lay employees and volunteers so the the problem regrettably is is not completely finished and it certainly is not isolated to clergy alone but we do have a safe environment training process here in the archdiocese now it's called Virtus, and it is required by anyone who would volunteer or be employed or be ordained here in the archdiocese of baltimore the purpose is that we want to create environments for our young people that are absolutely as safe as they can possibly be. And we believe that that training has been effective. Why? Number one, certainly we have seen the incidence of clerical sexual abuse decrease substantially since the 1970s and 1980s, but also because of the reporting that comes into our office today, resulting from the Safe Environment Sensitivity Training that many of the reports that are made would indicate that people are keeping their eyes open, they're aware of things that are going around them. I would say that what we receive today by way of reports into our office would largely fall under that broad category you would call boundary violations Mm -hmm. or violations of our own archdiocesan code of conduct. So for example, it's against our code of conduct for an adult minister, whether it be a teacher or a coach perhaps somebody working in one of our schools, to be texting a minor. That's against the code of conduct. When that occurs and it becomes known, that's reported to our office so that we can handle that here as well. So a number of those types of things certainly are coming over the transom on a fairly regular basis, which means that the safe environment trainings are working, that people are understanding what boundary violations are, and that they know that there is a mechanism by which they can report them. Mm -hmm. In
1: your meetings with victim survivors, what do you hear about their pain and what do you say to them? What can you say to them?
2: What I've learned is that healing is a lifelong struggle. And most significantly, that the healing process is not linear in terms of progress. In other words, it's not like they are better today than they were yesterday. And they're going to be better tomorrow than they are today. It doesn't work that way for most, if not all, victim survivors. Sometimes they may have a period where they're making great progress, but at times there are setbacks. And certainly seeing the incidence of child sexual abuse by clergy in the news would be something that for many does trigger a setback. So the healing doesn't occur in a short period of time. It's a lifelong journey. It doesn't occur in a linear fashion. But one of the things that I have learned from many of the victim survivors I've met with is that healing is in fact possible. And so much do we want that healing to occur that we offer the counseling for those victim survivors so that they can have the opportunity to process with a professional what has happened to them and achieve some measure of healing and also hopefully spiritual renewal in their lives.
1: After the break, we're gonna talk some more with Bishop Adam Parker. This is Chris Gunty of The Catholic Review and you're listening to Catholic Baltimore.
3: Do you wanna know more about what's going on in the church and the world than you can get from your daily newspaper or local TV? are listening
0: to Catholic Baltimore on Talk Radio 680 WCBM.
1: Welcome back to Catholic Baltimore. We're talking with Bishop Adam Parker, vicar general and moderator of the Curia, about the child sexual abuse crisis and what the church is doing to respond to it and to create safe environments. We talked a little bit about the policies that went into effect after the charter. New policies in the archdiocese went into effect November 1st that specifically include bishops, but was it always assumed that bishops were covered even though they weren't mentioned in the charter, at least here in Baltimore?
2: Here in Baltimore, it certainly was always assumed, and our statement of policy, which has been in effect since 2002, did not explicitly say bishops in referring to clergy or clerics. This year, we made that language very explicit in our policy so that it can be commonly understood by all that bishops are included and certainly have been included since the inception of the policy, but we wanted that to be entirely clear.
1: Mm-hmm. There are also some other new policies coming online that help promote bishop accountability. What tell us a little bit about that?
2: With regard to the Archdiocese of Baltimore, you may have heard that in the November meeting of the U.S. bishops, there was a proposal that was on the table. To provide some measure of accountability for bishops. Number one, that there would be a third-party reporting mechanism so that allegations of abuse by bishops or harassment or improper handling of abuse allegations by bishops could be reported and could be done to an independent agency or entity. In other words, so that a report wouldn't be made to the diocese or to the bishop himself. In addition to that proposal, there was a proposal that there would be a special commission that would investigate these allegations that would come by way of the third-party reporting mechanism for those types of allegations against bishops. We didn't have the opportunity to vote on those measures as was intervened by the Vatican just the Mm -hmm. very day before the meeting started. But when we finished the meeting, there was so much discouragement by many bishops, but certainly including the four of us bishops here in Baltimore, that we decided we didn't want to wait for those measures to be put into place, whether it would occur in a few months or even longer. Archbishop Lori decided to do something right now. What he decided is that we would enhance our current third-party reporting mechanism such that any allegations that would come forward against one of us bishops of the Archdiocese of Baltimore would not be processed through our our typical reporting mechanism, but would go straight to the head of our independent review board that reviews our cases of child sexual abuse and to a second member of that review board as well. And both of them are retired judges, right? That's correct. Both of them are retired judges. So the way it works is this we have a hotline that's been in place here in the archdiocese for years called ethics point it's a means by which people can report their pastor their employer or any situation that doesn't comport with our code of conduct here so that an investigation can occur and it could be something that would be fiscal it could be human resources related it could even be a pastoral issue that hotline which has been open for years now will subcategorize allegations against bishops to go directly to those two judges on our independent review board. Upon receiving allegations against a bishop in the area of sexual misconduct, sexual abuse of a minor, or sexual harassment, they will then notify the entire review board and also make a notification to the civil authorities if it's a matter of an actual crime having been alleged. Mm -hmm. They will also notify the Apostolic Nuncio, in other words, the ambassador from the Vatican to the United States, and also the senior bishop in the province of Baltimore. That senior bishop today is Bishop Fran Malulli of the Diocese of Wilmington, Delaware. You talked a little
1: bit about the Vatican right at the beginning of the bishops' meeting asking the bishops not to vote on those proposals to hold off until this meeting that the Pope is holding in February of the leaders of bishops' conferences throughout the world. You've worked in in Rome, you've lived in Rome, you've studied in Rome. Do you get the sense that the Vatican doesn't understand the urgency of this or that... Pope Francis doesn't understand how important it is to address this right now or is the Pope on one hand and the the Curia
2: is another hand? My sense is that, that the Pope as well as the Vatican Curia understand the crime, the sin, the scourge of child sexual abuse. I have little doubt about that at all especially what we've seen not just from the United States but from other countries over these past few years and even in recent years, including during the papacy of Pope Francis. So I think that the incidence of child sexual abuse by clergy, they get that. What I wonder about at times is, do they fully grasp how much our people are hurting? Do they fully grasp the the sense of anger and outrage and bewilderment on the part of our people here in the United States? That I'm not entirely sure of. And I say that because when the Vatican intervened in the voting of the November meeting of the U.S. bishops, there was a communication that went to the head of the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops, Cardinal Donardo, from Cardinal Ouellette, indicating that the, the vote should not take place. At the same time, there was not any press release on the part either of the U.S. Bishops Conference or of the Vatican to the American people about the suspension of that vote. I think that that may have gone a long way just to help our people understand better why that intervention occurred. Absent that, our people were just further angered and further frustrated and further bewildered. And I think that that's the part that I wonder if there is a full appreciation on the other side of the ocean about how much our people are hurting as a result of this scandal. And
1: as a result of that, the accountability of bishops, the accountability of the hierarchy gets the can kicked down the road for another several months, and people are eager
2: for action. Exactly, because the issue is the accountability of bishops. And I I, want to back up and say that I think that our people here in the archdiocese are feeling confident about our safe environment program, about the fact that the incidence of abuse by clergy has dropped off so much. But because of the incidents of this past summer, the revelation of how child sexual abuse was handled by bishops in Pennsylvania, and what happened with Archbishop McCarrick, our people are really concerned and focused on accountability for bishops. Mm. Are we doing the right things? and when we don't, what happens to us? That's where so much of the focus has come from our American people. And they're concerned about the Vatican acting quickly enough to enhance measures of accountability for bishops. Because that will take some time is the reason why Archbishop Laurie said, here in this archdiocese, we're going to have a mechanism for reporting and we're going to put that into place right away. Right now. Right now. Will we ever get to the point where we can say the church and the bishops have done all they can to address this scandal? I think that's a, an excellent question. And I wonder, in a certain sense, what what that point might fully look like. And I, re, I say that because of this. As I mentioned, here in the Archdiocese, it's been 25 years since a priest has abused a child that we know of. That's a long time, and we're happy with that. We can never, though, be complacent about that or in, in any way lessen our vigilance mm-hmm. because this type of thing can happen you know, at any time. There's reports warning. in nearby diocese sure. of it having happened recently. Much more recently. So it's, we can't be complacent about our vigilance. I think in terms of bishops doing the right thing, it's also important to, to look at what we are doing here and have been doing for, for some time now. The, the single greatest asset I think that we have in terms of handling these allegations now would be the, the lay involvement among the team members that we have both our internal team which I have already mentioned Mm -hmm. which is comprised entirely of lay members save for me and also our independent review board which is entirely lay save for one pastor who sits on the board that lay involvement has really changed the tide here in the past two and a half decades since the independent review board here was founded so bishops are acting in different ways today in regard to handling this than they were. I don't know how that evolution may continue over the coming years, but I expect that it will. As our understanding of this sin, of this, this scourge continues to evolve, I believe our handling will continue to evolve. Yeah. What our people want from us is transparency. They want to know that we're reaching out to victim survivors and providing measures of healing. And they want to know that those who are being formed for priesthood today are are being formed in healthy ways so that we don't see a repeat of what occurred in decades past. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: And so in light of all that, you see reason to hope? I see great reason to hope. I think we are at the forefront here in this archdiocese of this issue nationwide, but I don't think that what the the great things that we're doing here aren't being done in other dioceses as well. Is it entirely and exactly the same in all 195 or so dioceses across the country? Perhaps not. But I think that all dioceses are much, much further ahead than we were in decades past. Mm -hmm. So I think that there's great hope. In fact, so much hope do I have that I think that we as a Catholic Church can actually be a leader for other institutions, other organizations, even other religious denominations in addressing and preventing the issue of child sexual abuse. That would be a good thing to see. would be great. Good. Thank you so
1: much. We've been talking today with Bishop Adam Parker, Vicar General and moderator of the Curia for the Archdiocese of Baltimore and Auxiliary Bishop of Baltimore. Thank you so much for spending time with us.
2: Chris, thank you very much. You've been listening to Catholic Baltimore.
3: Child abuse is not only a crime, it's also a sin. The Archdiocese of Baltimore has long made the protection of children a leading priority in its parishes, schools, and other ministries. The Archdiocese seeks to keep kids safe through rigorous training and background checks and by implementing a zero-tolerance policy for anyone credibly accused of abusing a child. For more information about the Archdiocese's efforts to keep our children safe, please visit www.archbalt.org.